0: Real quick before we dive into this episode of the podcast, be sure to grab your free PDF copies of my latest books at frugal.show forward slash free. Now, on to the show. If you haven't already, Be sure to grab your free copy of my first two books, Frugalpreneur and Authorpreneur, by going to thesarahstjohn.com forward slash free. That's T-H-E-S-A-R-A-H-S-T-J-O-H-N dot com forward slash free. Now on to the show. Welcome to the Frugalpreneur Podcast. I am your host, Sarah St. John, and my guest today is a widely recognized pricing expert and marketing pro who teaches companies how to boost revenues and realize their true value. Welcome, Mark Stiving from Impact Pricing.
1: Thank you, Sarah. It's gonna be fun.
0: And can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got started in this business?
1: Well, since I'm old, this is a long story. (laughs) (laughs) I remember going to the grocery store with my mom and I would see prices that ended in nine. And I kept wondering, why do companies do that? Do they think we're stupid? Right? We know that 99 is the same as a dollar. And so if you fast forward a bunch of years, I found myself in a doctoral program at UC Berkeley, and I had a chance to play with scanner panel data, which is the data that grocery stores collect when you use your loyalty cards. And using this data, I was able to figure out does this nine cent thing really work? And it turns out it does. It's pretty cool. But from there, I just fell in love with this concept of understanding how people use price to make decisions, whether rationally or irrationally. And I went on to be a professor at Ohio State where I taught pricing. I was a director of pricing at a company. I wrote a book on pricing. I blog on pricing. I taught pricing. You could say that pricing is my life.
0: Yeah, I've always kind of wondered that myself. At gas stations, when it's like 0.99, I don't know, what is it, like 7 or 5 or something? Did you find something out? I mean, I guess it's to make it look like it's less. But it's like you said, we're all smart enough to figure out that 9.99 is really 10. And I know. Okay, you
1: ready for the answer?
0: Yeah. (laughs) I'm ready for it.
1: (laughs) It's because we are lazy subtractors. So what happens with prices is you rarely look at a price and say, oh, that's 79 cents. Do I want to buy that? What you usually do is you say, this one's 79, this one's 99. Which one am I going to go buy? Well, 99 minus 79 is easy to do. It's 20 cents. But what if the prices were different? What if it was something like 78 and 53? You're like, oh, no, no, no. Don't make me do math. Or what if it's 82 and 57? You're thinking, oh, no, those are horrible. I can't do this. But it turns out those two sets of numbers I gave you, both were 25 cents apart. And yet 82 and 57 looks like a much bigger difference than what was the other one I gave you, 77, 78 and 53. Both are 25 cents, but one looks much bigger. Why is that? Because the left-hand digits were different. And what I figured out was if the left-hand digits are different... That's all we look at. But if the left-hand digits are the same, then we decide to go look at the right-hand digits. But here's a question. If nobody's going to look at your right-hand digit, what digit do you think you should use there? Nine. That way we make more money. So that's why companies do this. I'll give you another quick example. Think about something that normally sells for $400, on sale for $299. That's a great discount. Mm-hmm. Think about something that normally sells for $399, on sale for $299. That's nowhere near as good a discount. It's almost the exact same discount. It's a mm-hmm. dollar difference. And it's because we only look at those left-hand digits.
0: Wait, the first one you said was
1: $400. dollars discounted to $299. Uh-huh,
0: yeah. So 100...
1: Second one was $399 discounted to
0: $299. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm thinking $3.99. Yeah, okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I'm with you. But the point is that's one of the reasons what I just gave you is one of the reasons you often see products at list price with zero, zero prices. Mm. And as soon as they go on sale, they give them a nine cent or 99 ending because the discount looks much bigger. Mm,
0: mm -hmm. Well, and then I've noticed a lot of online stuff now ends in a seven, like $97, $997. Is there a, a story or theory behind that?
1: I do not know of the story or the theory. Here's what I can tell you is that these online people test prices to no end. Mm. And so it wouldn't surprise me if under the right circumstances, they've proven that seven works better than nine or works better than five or whatever it is. And to them, it isn't the extra two cents, it's the conversion rate right? If I get an extra 2% conversion, that's a big deal.
0: I mean, there's so many different pricing things like $4.95 a month. It's just interesting how people do different things. But then you have places like Walmart, I think does a lot of stuff where it's a flat dollar amount, like $5 even. And and then you have stores like Dollar Tree and Five Below that have round pricing as well.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure about the Walmart $5 because I don't remember seeing that, but things like the Dollar Tree or the Five Below, Here's what's going on is they're using the price as part of their marketing. They're not setting prices based on willingness to pay, which is how we should be setting prices. They're using it as a marketing tool. I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, but remember back when they had $5 subways, $5 foot longs for subways? Uh
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember
1: that. They're using the price as a marketing tool, Mm. which is pretty cool. It's really valuable. One more quick hint for you on price endings. Oftentimes, products that end in zero-zero... Are seen as higher quality products. So back a long time ago, when I was writing my dissertation, I went to all these different shoe stores, and here's an amazing thing that I found at shoe stores. Every shoe, up until let's say it was about $120, ended in 99 cents or $9. So it'd be like 109 or 79 or 59. Once you hit that $120 mark. It switched to zero, zero. So it's $130 or $150 or $175. It's pretty fascinating because that zero, zero to people says higher quality where the 99 says better price. And and so what I've done with everything I sell is I use round prices for everything. And the reason I do that is it says, A, it's higher quality. And B, nobody ever looks at my stuff and says, am I gonna buy from Mark or am I gonna go buy from somebody else? They just say, am I going to buy from Mark or not?
0: What strategies would you recommend when someone's trying to come up with pricing? I guess it depends on what it is, whether it's a product or a service, but are there any kind of strategies to determine your pricing? There's about a thousand of them. (laughs) (laughs) Not 999 of them, a thousand. Yeah, maybe 999,
1: who knows? (laughs) But the first question I would ask is, are we talking a B2B type product or a B2C type product? I would say that's the thing that matters in my mind more than anything else. If we're talking B2C, then the, the best technique is going to be to use some type of survey technique to find out how much people are willing to pay. Now, you may use something. There's a technique. You can Google this. It's called Van Westendorp's Price Sensitivity Meter. You can do this with, let's say... 15 respondents. So you go talk to 15 people and you're going to start to get a good feeling for what the marketplace looks like and is willing to pay. So you don't need a huge amount of data to get a reasonable result using something like that. Or here's a quick and dirty question you can ask in the B2C world. I love this one. You can't ever ask how much would you pay me for this? But what you can ask is how much do you think other people would pay for this?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And you tend to get a better answer when you ask that question.
0: I had a photography business about a a decade ago, I guess. And I priced more on the lower end. That was kind of my, I guess, selling point was that I was an affordable photographer. Well, there was someone I knew who had a DJ business. So he was in the wedding business as well, because I mainly did wedding photography. And he was like, you don't want to be the cheapest. I felt at the time that that was my selling point or what made me stand out maybe from other photographers, but just in general, when you're pricing something like, okay, so I'm in the middle of launching a podcast company of editing and production and trying to figure out pricing right now. And so I'm kind of looking at other companies who do that. Do I want to be comparable to that? Do I want to be less? Do I want to be more? What are your suggestions or recommendations when, whether it's a photography business or some kind of service-based business, I guess, to compare to the competition and then decide to either match or be lower. I guess that kind of comes down to if you're wanting your pricing to be your differentiator.
1: Yeah. So let me say two things that are really important. Thing number one, which 10 years ago, you're totally forgiven for this, but most solopreneurs don't have self-confidence in their own products and their own capabilities. And so they don't charge enough. Most solopreneurs just undercharge completely. Pretty much, if you're a solopreneur, go raise your prices. You'll be happy you did that. Second point I am not a fan at all of competing on price. I think that if you're competing on price, your customers are the worst customers. They're not fun to work with. They're the ones that are always focused on, I got to get this at the cheapest possible thing, and they're going to expect more from you. They're never going to be happy with you, and you're struggling to make ends meet. I just do not like competing on price. On the other hand, I love competing on value. And what I would be doing is I would be looking at what my competitors are offering today. What could I offer that's better? And it doesn't necessarily mean more of other things. It could be higher quality. It could be better advice. What can I offer that's better? And then can I convince my buyers that what I do is better than what my competitors are doing? To me, that's the big deal. Now, there's one third point that I'd love to make, and that is when our buyers are choosing to buy from us, we have to know what decision they just made before they bought from us. And they're going to make one of two different decisions. They're either going to say, am I buying from you or am I buying from one of your competitors? Or they're going to say, am I buying from you or am I not buying? That second one I talked about is called a will I decision. Will I buy something in this product category? And people are not price sensitive. They're not even thinking about our competition. We should not be talking about our competition. On the other hand, if they're deciding between me and my competitor, then what I want to make sure is that I know how I'm different from my competition and be able to explain that well to my buyers.
0: Yeah, those are good points. Because I was kind of thinking along those lines already, looking at the other companies and looking more at what they're offering and what can I offer more. So like a lot of them don't offer a podcasting website included, but that's a plan that I have. That's just one thing that I'm going to mm-hmm. add in there. So, and then how do you determine when it's time to raise your price and, and buy how much?
1: There's actually a lot of different answers <laughs> to that question. If you're a solopreneur, and you're essentially selling hours. And so by selling hours, what I mean is I get an order, which means I have to work another four hours this week in order to take care of whatever that customer wanted from me. So if I'm essentially selling hours, then what I would recommend is how many hours a week do you want to work? Let's pretend the answer is 40. Once I get to 30 hours, I raise my prices. So once I'm working 30 hours a week, I'm just going to raise my prices for those next 10 hours as customers are coming in. When customers fade away and I get new customers to come in, they get the higher price
0: points. Ah, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that concept before. I like that. And then can you go into a little bit of the value-based pricing? I was looking on your website and there's value-based, subscription, which I guess subscription is for subscriptions, but maybe just the different pricing models.
1: So in my mind, there's only one pricing model. And that's called value-based pricing. The reason that's such a big deal is in a lot of companies that make products, they do something called cost plus pricing, which is they say, how much does it cost me to make this? I want to make this much margin. I'm going to add that to the product, to my cost, and that's how much I'm going to sell it for. And that's just not the best way to do pricing. The only way to do pricing is called value-based. And value-based pricing really means charge what your customers are willing to pay. Because I define value as how much my customer is willing to pay. Now, the hard part is figuring out how much is my customer willing to pay. And those are some of the things we've been talking about. So in that B2C world, we talked about going out and doing Van Westendorp's price sensitivity meter with your customers and asking them those questions. Or what we were talking about with you a second ago was looking at how much my competition is charging. What are the things I do better? How valuable is that to my customers? And we can go ask our customers, how much would you think this would be worth? And now we can start with our competitor's price and add to that the value of the things we do better than them. But in both of those cases, this is value-based pricing. This is charging what what we think our customers are willing to pay. To be fair, it is absolutely impossible to do value-based pricing. And I say that because you can't read anybody's mind. There's no way that you know how much somebody's willing to pay. What we can do is we can get closer and closer in the estimates we make and the the questions we ask, watching the data that we collect. So our objective is to always strive towards charging what our customers are willing to pay, and and that is value-based pricing.
0: Okay, and then I guess the subscription pricing is only relevant when it's like Netflix, for example, or something that's a recurring fee.
1: Yes. And can I suggest if you're going to do podcast management, you could offer a subscription. And so the subscription says you pay me $500 a month. I do up to four podcasts a month. If you don't send them to me, you still pay me 500 bucks. But if you send me four, I do four. And so you could do a subscription pretty easily in your pricing.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's what I was planning on doing was like a monthly subscription and then giving a discount if they want to pay, like give them two months free, basically, if they want to pay annually for a whole year. Of- Perfect. So can you tell us a little about your company impact pricing and what exactly you do and help people with?
1: I have one company, but it actually has two arms to it. The company impact pricing, I do coaching and teaching of what pricing is And I typically do that for relatively large companies. So I'll mentor people inside the company. And then I have another arm, which is called championsofvalue.com. And at championsofvalue.com, I have an online education program. Today, we've got five courses. I put up a new course every other month or something like that. But we've got five different courses on uh, what pricing is, how you think about it. So different topics in pricing. Uh, So they're all up there on my subscription program. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Speaking of subscriptions, yes, I saw that you have a subscription growth calculator on your website. How does that work? I, I haven't tried it yet. I should though.
1: Here's what the subscription growth calculator does for you. Subscriptions are different than most other businesses in the following sense. If I want to sell you a class, you buy a class from me, you take the class, we're done. Life is Life is over, right? Our relationship's done. We still like each other and maybe we'll do business again someday, but we're essentially done. But in a subscription, I get you to join my subscription site and then I need you to stay with me, right? So it isn't only I have to get the order, but now I got to keep my customer. And it turns out you can also grow customers. Because once I've got a customer in my network, now could I get you to upgrade to a different package? Could I get you to use more of my product and pay me more for it? Can I get you to buy something else? Can I raise your price? There's lots of ways that I could get more money out of my current subscribers. And so I think of that as having these three different revenue buckets that I call win, keep and grow consultants call these acquisition, retention, and expansion. But I think of it as winning customers, keeping customers, growing customers. And what the subscription growth calculator does is it allows you to put in certain assumptions so that you can say, here's the goal I want to get to in terms of five years from now, I want this much revenue. And you can make the assumptions on what your retention rate is going to be. Or I should say, what's your churn rate going to be? What's your growth rate for winning new customers? What's your growth rate for growing your customers? And when you start putting those in on a year-by-year basis, you can say, what does it take for me to get to the goal that I really want to get to? And what's so important about that is because we as companies have to choose where are we going to put our resources? Are we going to put our resources on winning new customers? Are we going to put our resources on keeping our current customers? Are we going to put our resources on growing our current customers? And that shifts over time.
0: okay. So it's like you put in what you would like to be making and what your subscription price is and then how many people you would need to get there. So when you mentioned focusing on getting new customers, keeping the ones you have or growing the ones you have, what would you say is the most important? That's actually the million dollar question, you know,
1: <laughs> that's just the best question. So it turns out when you first start, you better be focused on winning, right? Because if you don't have any customers, the other two buckets don't matter. So we got to go figure out, how do we go win new customers? As soon as you start winning customers, you got to start focusing on keeping customers. For a long time, you don't have to worry about growing customers. you got to focus on winning and keeping customers. And then once you've got a decent sized customer base, then you're going to find it's much, much easier as a company to grow if you start focusing more on growing your customers than winning new customers
0: yeah that's what i was thinking yeah so obviously you have to find customers first but then once you have an amount that you find acceptable i guess then you yeah focus on keeping them as far as retention strategies i mean that has to go along with keeping customers so
1: it's the one of the three buckets i focus least on mm-hmm. uh, because it has less to do about pricing but i'll give you a few pointers on retention if, if i may our uh, first pointer is onboarding when we first bring a customer into our subscriptions we need to make them feel super welcome. We need to make them productive as quickly as possible and using our product as quickly as possible. Because what we don't want is for them to churn out quickly. So we get them up to speed and we get them to getting value out of our product quickly. In retention, what we really care about is making sure people are getting value from our product regularly. And so what we could be doing is, assuming it's a SaaS type product or we have the ability to see usage online, we should be watching their usage to see how much are they using each month? Is it going down? Is it going up? If it starts to go down or it drops off, maybe we reach out to them directly. We call them up and say, hey, what's going on? And how can I help? And we get them back into the swing because if they stop using our product, they're going to stop paying us for our product. And that's really what retention is all about.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And as far as pricing strategies, when you're growing your customers, let's say they got in at an introductory rate, but then your prices go up. Do you recommend grandfathering those people in at the rate that they came in at or increasing their rate along with the new people that come in?
1: That's actually not an important decision to make, believe it or not. And I say that in the following sense. Usually the people we brought in at a really low rate, there aren't that many of them. And so it wasn't that, oh, if I raise their prices, I'm going to make a whole bunch more money by raising their prices. Now, if I've been in business for quite a while, I've got a bunch of customers and then I want to do a price increase, then I might want to think about, do I want to raise prices on everybody or do I just want to raise prices on new people? Here's the easy answer. Just raise prices on new people. Nothing bad happens and nobody even knows you had a price increase. But there's this big opportunity that maybe we can get more revenue from our current customer base by increasing their prices. So my advice when you do this is if you can see usage for your customers, so you know how much each customer is using, then rank order them where you've got the highest usage customer at the top, the lowest usage customer at the bottom, take the top 20% of usage and raise their prices and see what happens. And if nobody churns out or if very few churn out, then go to the next 20% and raise their prices. And what you're going to find is one of these tiers, one of these 20% tiers, we're going to get to the point where the number of people who churned out probably cost us as much money as we made because of the price increase on that tier. Anybody below that, don't bother raising their prices. And so here's an easy way to think about this. Let's say that you own a gym and you've got people who come to the gym every single day and you've got people who haven't been to the gym for a year and you want to raise prices. If you raise prices on the people who come to the gym every day, what are they going to do? They're going to say, hey, why'd you raise my price? Here's the extra money. If you raise prices on the people who haven't been to the gym in a year, what are they going to do? They're probably going to just drop off entirely. They're going to drop off. And so when we raise someone's prices, we're asking them to rethink their decision. And what I want to do is make sure that the people who are going to rethink are the ones who are getting the most value from my product. So they make the right decision, which is to stay with my product.
0: Yeah, that's a good analogy. I like that. And speaking of gems and pricing, it reminds me, I was, I don't know if it was a podcast or a book that I was listening to or reading recently about Peloton and how supposedly when they started, they were priced pretty low. I don't know, two or 300 something dollars and they weren't doing well or selling much. But then someone told them you need to be top of the line or you need to raise your price. And now I don't know how much they are, 1500 or something. And then they started doing really well. Is that a common thing? I mean, usually people say, lower your price to get more business.
1: So I don't know that specific Peloton story, but here's what I will say is that price is a signal of quality. You don't know how good something is. And so you look at the price and here's what goes through your mind. Oh, other people pay that price. It must be pretty good if they're charging it. And so it is not uncommon for companies that raise their prices dramatically for volume to increase. But the way you're going to know that is by understanding what do people perceive of the quality of your product. And so if they're charging a low price and and they say, "Yeah, yeah, but nobody would ever do that. You know, it's not very good. Who would who would want to do online spinning anyway? It's not a big deal." And then you raise the price and people go, "Oh, that sounds really interesting. I'd love to to try online spinning and it and it feels like I'm going to get in shape and be fit and lose weight and all those things I really want to go do. And so suddenly it feels like it might be valuable to me. So price could be a signal of quality in their case and it, and that could be a very true story.
0: As far as tennis shoes go, I pretty much just do Nike and that's because I find that the quality is better, but they're also 150 $200 a pair, but they last a long yeah. time.
1: Yeah. So it's not only price, but in that case, it's also the brand, mm-hmm. right? You know, the Nike brand, you trust them, you like them. And so it'll be tough for Nike. If they ever came out with the $20 shoe, it's, it's going to hurt their brand.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That wouldn't be a smart idea at this point or like Apple products. I don't know how much it costs them to make those things, but a thousand dollar phone and I'm an Apple person. So I usually only upgrade my phone every, I think, four generations or something. Basically when the, the phone starts not working anymore. I'm like, oh, I don't want to pay 800 or a thousand or whatever, but you do it anyway. Yeah,
1: you do. Yes. Yes. So let me tell you why you do that. Let me Let me tell you why Apple gets away with charging such a high price. It's because you aren't considering an Android phone. Now it's not just you, by the way, it's everybody, right? right? Everybody says, am I going to go buy the new iPhone this year or not? But so few people ever say, am I going to go buy the new iPhone or am I going to switch over to Android? Now, if a bunch of us said, Hey, we're considering Android because it was a reasonable choice or whatever, then Apple would have lower prices because they would be price competitive with Android, maybe a little bit more, but they'd still be in that, in that price range. But the fact that you and I never make that decision, right? Everybody's making the will I decision. Everybody's saying, am I going to consider a competitive product? No, I'm not. And Apple knows we're not price sensitive and they can charge a higher price.
0: That's a good place for any business to get to. So Apple, Nike, I I can't think of another one off the top of my head, but- Coke. Well, I prefer Dr. Pepper. (laughs) Okay. Dr. Pepper.
1: (laughs) Whatever you've got in your tastes or your brands for, that's what you're up for.
0: Yeah. So it's like rarely will- someone switch over, I guess, once they get used to something.
1: It's hard because brands, this isn't exactly pricing, but it's close enough. Brands essentially indicate trust. You like Dr. Pepper because every time you have a Dr. Pepper, you get the same flavor, the same feeling. It's it's this consistency. You trust that this is what you're going to get and you're willing to pay money. Or if you bought a Mr. Pib, which supposedly tastes a lot like a Dr. Pepper, You're thinking, yeah, I don't really trust that. It's not going to be as good. It's not going to be what I like. So you don't buy it. You'd pay more for Dr. Pepper.
0: Well, it's funny because I actually like Mr. Pibb. In some ways, I think it actually tastes a little bit better. It's I think it's sweeter a little bit. Pretty much anything in the Dr. Pepper family, as far as anything that has Dr. or Mr. on front of it, you know, even if it's a store brand, I'll drink it. I just won't switch over to Coke or Pepsi. I won't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I guess okay. that's kind of like going from Apple to Android.
1: It is. It is like, oh, I'm not loyal. I'm not loyal.
0: Yeah. So not loyal to Dr. Pepper per se, but that flavor profile, I guess. I don't know. Yes. Well, I appreciate your time. I feel like I've learned a lot and I think the listeners will appreciate it as well. Was there anything else that you wanted to go over that I hadn't asked about yet?
1: No, this was fun.
0: All right. Well, and people can find you at impactpricing.com or championsofvalue.com. And then I'll have show notes at thesarahsaintjohn.com forward slash impact pricing. Perfect. If you enjoyed and found value from this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you rate, review, subscribe, and share at ratethispodcast.com forward slash frugalpreneur. Until next time. Are you a frugalpreneur looking to connect with like-minded individuals? Join our community on Slack, connect with fellow listeners,